Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. And today's episode is with Nick Bat. Now, Nick was introduced to me by my friend Ben Berlin, who orchestrated this podcast, and we recorded it at the WeWork building in Devonshire Square in London, trendy East London, in fact, and Nick travelled up from Bath, and we had a cracking chat. Uh, Nick was catapulted into into fame in 1990 when he made the worldwide smash Tom's Diner with Susan Vega, uh, UK number two, uh, number five in the US, number one in Switzerland, Austria, Germany, um, followed up with, let me see if I can say this right, uh, La Serenisma, um, also went on to remix for for Dave Stewart, Kylie Minogue, and on and on and on and on. Um, we find out all about this on this chat and uh, the work that Nick now does uh, with Sonic State. It's a really, really interesting chat. So before we get on with it, let's just do a quick shout out to everybody over at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, so many good podcasts on there now. So go and, go and have a little look there. There's a new kid on the block over at the Distraction Pieces Network that's only Mr. Dan Lassac. So go and check out Dan's new podcast. If you like hearing Dan doing podcasts, have a look in our back catalogue because Dan was one of my first guests on Off The Beaten Track and that's a cracking chat. And so go and check out everyone else over there. You've got stuff from Susie Gage, Jason Reed, Jim Smallman, Brett Goldstein and obviously Scroobius Pip. Not forgetting this podcast called Hardcore Listing. That's worth a look. Uh, hosted by Chris Glasson and some other guy with a lisp. Go and give that a look. Um, and before we get on with the episode, what else do I need to do? I need to thank 76 for producing this. I need to thank my name is Ad for doing the artwork. If you like this podcast, what I can suggest is please have a look in the back catalogue because you may well like lots of guests that I've chatted to already. And if you want even more, we have a Patreon page. On that Patreon page, you get an exclusive episode every week on there. So by going over there and subscribing for as little as, I think it's 79p a month, um, you're really helping me grow the podcast and and continue um, my journey towards world pod domination. Um, just kidding. Go and have a look, though. And the best place to find out about all of this is your one-stop shop. 
www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. Just one more shout out. If you like podcasts and you like all the ones on the Distraction Pieces Network and you want to know about all the other podcasts that exist in the world, there's a magazine. It's a print magazine and it's a digital magazine. And it's called Pod Bible. And that's owned by myself, Scroobius Pip, and my name is Ad. And there's everything you need to know about this ever-evolving and growing world of podcasts. Go and have a look at the website, www.podbiblemag.com. Go and get stuck in. Let's get on with the podcast anyway. Please enjoy Off the Beat and Track podcast with Nick Bat. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable, and water based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. We are recording. We are at WeWork in Devonshire Square in trendy East London. Uh, we've got a lovely little studio supplied by my kind friend Ben Berlin so thank you very much Ben for for doing that and sitting opposite me today is uh, Sonic State boss man uh, DNA producer uh, Nick Bat. Hello. All right. Yeah I'm good feeling very uh, surrounded by marble. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of marble polished kind of or is it polished concrete I can't tell the difference. It's a crazy place where, where we're recording now. I mean, we're looking out the window. It's in. It's just by Liverpool Street Station, and it's obviously very built up. And it's, I guess, we're in the the heart of the city, and mm. there's lots of suits everywhere. And 
we're not wearing suits. Hot desking. A lot of hot desking going on. In fact, isn't that what we're doing now? Hot desking, yeah. Sounds like it could have been a really good disco record. <laughs> always reminds me, you always used to, uh, whenever anybody used to ask what I was doing when I was working in the studio, uh, the guy I used to work with always used to say, oh, we're waxing a hottie. Which is a, which is a 1930s term for recording a gramophone cylinder, I believe. Yeah. Waxing a hottie. Yeah, I like that one. I wonder what millennials would, would, would think that means. Probably some kind of uh, explicit message sent via text. Could be, yeah. Waxing and hot, yeah. It, I think a hottie has a different, yeah. Yeah. This was an innocent, innocence, yeah. hottie in terms of innocent hottie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you've sent over your songs in advance. Um, we've, not met, we've not met until today. Yeah. And we've just had some some lunch and uh, we've, we've, we've had a chat and as, as is the case, as... as as many times before you sit with the the guest beforehand and you're desperately just want to chat about the things that you know that the guest is into and things that you've got in common but you can't because you've got to you save got, it for the pod so so we've saved it and uh so we've made some small talk so we're going to um we can have a proper chat now so you've sent your songs um cracking list so let's get started track one nick the song with the greatest intro this was tough because I, did, I, well, I suddenly realised that this was going to be like a kind of Desert Island Discs sort of mm-hmm. vibe. I'm probably yep. not allowed to say. You probably have to censor that, wouldn't you? Because it's, cause it's, it's not a BBC production. BBC, if you're listening, tweet in. Yeah, uh, <laughs> tweet in. That's right. <laughs> so I kind of, some of them have got a couple I couldn't decide. So you I can have some honourable mentions, mate. That's fine. Okay, all right. Well, that's good. I think, and this is weird because I, I think in my past... You know, people think of what I do now as sort of related to electronic music, you know, pop music production and synthesizers. So they might be a bit surprised to hear that, that one, the first one that came to mind actually was ACDC's Back in Black. Okay. And it's the rest of the song I could live without quite easily. But mm-hmm. the opening riff is so emotive and evocative it's it it, it's sort of the essence of rock and roll and i'm not i'm not like a rocker or anything but yeah it's so it's so it you know there's that it's hard to imagine anything more so i mean i'm sure there are but to me every time i hear it i just go oh that's such a great intro it's rock personified isn't it kind of yeah yeah it, and I think it's it's a bit more poignant now. And I, I used to like um, ACDC when I was a kid. You know, when I was when I was a kid, it was all sort of Aerosmith and Black Sabbath and all that sort of stuff. Because I mean, I'm not I'm probably not as young as some uh, as some of your guests, so mm-hmm. my references might be a little bit sort of on the sliding scale. So back then, there was a lot of a lot of hard rock and rock music around in the charts, and so I suppose that's what I would have heard. But yeah. still, Back in Black is still you yeah. Know, it's, it's a bullshit. God rest record. his soul. Yeah. Angus and Malcolm, you know. So, when we talk intros, before we get on to, to, to some of your intros, as a, as a producer and as a, and a songwriter, um, how, and a remixer, how important was the intro then? And how important do you think the intro is now? That's interesting. I mean, I, I think, and I often, when you listen back to kind of, you know, they, they top of the pops from your era when you were a teenager, whatever, you know, that could be 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. They do those reruns. 
And you listen back and you go, oh, God, some of those arrangements were really dodgy. You know, you listen back to a lot of the stuff in the 70s, pre and during punk, and they were terrible. I mean, it was awful pub rock nonsense, you mm. know, and the arrangements are really unadventurous. But there is a certain formulaic nature that you sort of almost have to follow with an intro. An intro has to give you a sense, generally speaking, of what's coming in the chorus. Yeah. This is for radio. I'm talking, you know, maybe dance stuff is kind of different because it will build. But it's got to be recognisable. And it's probably got to have the most elements, if not the main motif. And it has to set it up so you know exactly what the record is. You know, it's like, oh, I like this one is what you should be thinking. I'm heading for the dance floor mm. or I'm going to stop what I'm doing and listen to it for a bit. But generally speaking, you know, in terms of music production, it was always, intro was always part of the chorus. So you just go intro, which is chorus, then you go verse, then you go bridge, then you go second verse, then you go chorus, then you go third verse, then you go middle. You know, I mean, yep. it, there, there is a standard formula. Yeah, of course. Which I, I'm glad to say, you know, now the thing that I find really interesting about modern music, mod, more current stuff, is the arrangements are all over the place. Mm. And they're really adventurous and interesting. But at the same time, they're also, some of them are really pedestrian. And the, nowadays, you know, we've got the... Um, the vocal sampling, you know, and, and the hooks that are made up from samples. And it's really funny because that was what, you know, I was doing, you know, yeah. when I first started out. And these cyclical things tend to come in and out, but they're still using the intro has to have yeah. an element of the chorus because then you know what, what you're getting into. Um, we'll pick up on on the kind of evolution of sampling and stuff like that. I don't, I don't want to get too techy because... Um, I could easily do that when it comes to what was happening. Then, as we work through your yeah, your creative sure. journey today, I'd like to sort of pick up because I'm sure that that kind of evolution of, of, of like the sampling culture would have happened at a time probably when you was probably prime for you as a, as a musician as and, and yeah, as to finding your feet well, within technology enabling and all that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, look, let's let's just um, get your honourable mention or mentions in. Honourable mention, um, I'm a really big fan of Japan. Japan uh, band from, you know, not everybody knows about them. Um, uh, they're sort of band, uh, David Sylvian, Mick Khan, uh, Steve Jansen, who, incidentally, Steve Jansen and David Sylvian are brothers, and their surname, family name is Bat. Did you know that? I did not know that. And I remember, I was really into them, and Mick Khan, the bass player. I mean, they're just, you know, musically, it was something so different from the time. It was really kind of stylistically uh, unusual. And Sylvian but, was a beautiful, incredible, charismatic... Yeah, I mean, they they had some dodgy glam, glam rock phases. They yeah. worked through New York Dolls, and then they hit upon the tin drum era, which... And so, for me, Sons of Pioneers sort of epitomises that, because the bass is front and centre, and it's just... Mick Khan did some beautiful bass lines. Going back to the bat story, um, I went to see, uh, I think it was Rain Tree Crow or one of them, where it, was, it wasn't David Sylvian, but it was Richard Barbieri, uh, Steve Jansen and Mick Khan playing at Moles, where it's a club I used to work at. And I was so excited. <laughs> and I watched them, and they, they, honestly, they looked so bored. Steve Jansen is such a great drummer. He was sat there playing the drums, sort of talking to his roadie. You know? Oh, really? And it was, it was actually a bit condescending in the end. And I bounded up like a kind of super king, and I ran out, I ran out and go, oh, and the first thing I said is, I'm a bat too. <laughs> Great opener, think, mate. Yeah, it was. Didn't, <laughs> didn't get anywhere after that, but, you know, that's, that's my, that's, that's yeah. the never, never meet your heroes story. Yeah. And certainly don't open your mouth when you're going to say rubbish like that, Yeah. You got a story out of it, though. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. If you would have gone up and just gone all right, and they would have said all right, and you would have got on all right, that wouldn't have you wouldn't have been talking about it to this day, would you? 
I probably wouldn't have bothered mentioning it. No. Yeah, there you go. Track two, mate. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. I think this is interesting because when I was a kid, I don't remember ha- having uh, a sort of that sort of visceral reaction so much. It, it, it could be a, a, an emotional response in, in, in any way, shape, yeah, well, or the, joy or, or I, well, But So I think now, I, I mean, the first time I really noticed it, this happening to me was... Um, it's ABBA, Dancing Queen, you know, and it's it, it's a che- it's cheese fest, fest, but I mean, it's some of the most sublimin- sublimely written and arranged pop music. One of the greatest every, intros ever as well. Every single piece of that, even the hi-hat fill is a hook, you know. You, you, every, there's nothing wasted in there whatsoever. There's I mean, no it's, it's, it's an, but it's really full up. I mean, mm. it's, it's a work of genius in terms of pop production, you know. I mean, of its age and of its era. Everybody knows it, you know. It's, but what it is for me is now when I, when I hear it, it makes me cr- want to cry because it's this, the lyric, I mean, they're not very lyrically sophisticated, Abba. They never were. But the joy of it's... Let's go and dance, you know, the teenage kids going and dances and, you, you know, having the... T- but seen from afar, almost. It makes me... It makes it gives me shivers now just thinking about it. It's because of this sort of youthful potential. The, 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 the bliss and the, the kind of... The, the simplicity of youth and just having a good time and really just loving being in the moment. And particularly... It makes me think, sort of, my daughter, you know, she's going to have that feeling. You know, she's probably a bit young for going to the disco yet, but, you know, she's or clubbing or whatever. But she's going to have that feeling. And it, it makes me it makes me well up a bit because it's the potential. It's At the same time, it's the potential, but it's also a little bit of the loss from my own point of view as well. Teenage dreams so hard to beat. Yeah. It is, isn't it? It is undertones again. I get everything you've just said. I get that from Teenage Kicks as well. Uh, well, funnily enough, because well, I was talking with uh, my partner Jane about this, and she said, ah, oh, Teenage Kicks. And I thought, yeah, that's true. But she's like a couple of years older than me. So, yeah. uh, I, I mean, while it was a great record, it didn't, it, it doesn't have the that emotional yeah. response to me in the same way. Yeah. Uh, are, are, I mean, are you a fan of ABBA, aside from Yeah, yeah. I Queen? mean, yes. Uh, I think some of it's great. I mean, it's all cheese, mm. but th- th- and this is—I've I've had discussions with Swedish people and Scandinavians about why are they so good at pop music? You know, Max Martin. I mean, Britney Spears, "Hit Me Baby One More Time," for its time again, almost the perfect pop record. Mm-hmm. No fat, everything's a riff, everything's a hook. I mean, genius. You know, I think personally. Yeah. Um, and he's, I think he's Swedish, isn't he, Max Martin? Swedish yeah. House Mafia. You know, there, there are so many of the cardigans. You know, mm. It goes on and on and on. There are lots and lots of them. Cardigans make great uh, pop a rock music. set. You know, I yeah. mean, uh, yes, this is pop cheese. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm more a pop person. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd be fully my hands up. So I think but, it's interesting. But to write, to write a, a you know, a shoegaze, sandscapey record is 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 tough to do. To write a perfect pop song, that's fucking impossible, right? It's not easy to write. I mean, all right, you wrote one. I, don't, but... I, well, I didn't write it, but yeah, I know what you mean. I, yeah. I think it's hard. I, I think there's an element of luck, as in all. Yeah. You're plucking it out of the air. You know, sometimes things become bigger than the sum of their parts. So you may have thought you were in control, but then it becomes something else. Sure. So, you know, there are people who are good at that. And there are some people who aren't. Or there are people who, who it all just came mm. together once. And they're yeah. the one-hit wonders, you know. That, yeah. So, you know, there's, it's like everybody's got a book in them, you know. It's probably yeah. everybody's got one good pop hook in yeah. them at least, you know, so. ABBA didn't have one. They had a lot. 
you know, well, I, everything. I, 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 I think they're an, an absolute class act. Well, I, you I, DJ, right? I do. So, would you play ABBA, and what sort of event would it be that you play ABBA at? I would have zero, zero qualms about playing Dancing Queen in any venue. Because is, it the, is it an ironic? No. No. It's a fucking great record. Right. It's a perfect it, record. It fill the floor as well. Right? And like, because it's pure joy. Yes, it's that's pure what, joy. Yeah. And like, the chorus is, as you said, even the fucking iats are, are riddled with hooks. It, it's, it's so perfect. Yeah. And it's like, you know, in this day and age, I can't even play Michael Jackson in the clubs anymore now. <laughs> and like, and oh, so, tell me about it. There's quite a lot of records that you know I loved as a kid, and it's just like I can't even really talk about them anymore. I'm not allowed to. Don't stop till you get enough. Would get me out of trouble in any <laughs> fucking club. Not so much now, maybe. Not so much now. But um, it's a shame, isn't it? Really. Can you disassociate the artist from the music? You know, I'm a, I'm a I think huge Smiths I've, fan, and Morrissey says some Mar- dumb Morrissey's shit. Morrissey's a ass, isn't he? Really. Uh, Yes, to a degree, but I think there there are certain things that are unforgivable. Yeah, and you know some of those things that we know about, and some of them are kind of like having sort of dubious political views. Yeah, you know yeah. you could probably get away with that, or have it. It'll just be in a bit of an ass. Yeah. yeah, but some things you can't. Yeah, it's hard to, and it's it's such a shame. Really, it really is a shame. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I suppose. But that's that one always makes me tear up a bit. Yeah. Perfect. Definitely. Perfect. Um, so where was you born? I was born in uh, Bristol uh, at St. Mary Redcliffe, 1965. So growing up at home then um, in, in Bristol, was there music on at home? Were your folks into well, music? Uh, there wasn't much happening in Bristol because I was born there. And then uh, my parents moved to Cardiff because my dad uh, was uh, an artist and he was at... Uh, school there and he also did some school in Bristol I think they moved around a bit um yes I remember like the Beatles Octopus's Garden around that area whatever that sort of time yeah so there would have been music and a little record player yeah was you already sort of listen like look paying attention to it at a level that maybe your friends weren't I know I doubt it I mean you know it's hard to remember I do remember listening I, I think the thing about the Beatles is you know, again, it's sim- very simplistic melody, but you know, good, good, strong songwriting. So, and it sort of appeals to kids. It's almost, you know, that music has become almost uh, like uh, received memories for people. You know, you know, kids today know the words, know the tunes. Well, how? How do you know that? You I had this conversation. How do you know that? I had this conversation about three podcasts ago. I was driving home with my daughter. So apologies to listeners that listened to that episode. Um, with my daughter in the car and somewhere in my heart by a set camera come on the radio, right? The Hyatts have got hooks in that as well. That's a Dolby production, isn't it? Is it? I think so. And, oh my God, like, boom. Somewhere in the city, intro and half. Ba-ba-da. And then like, the chorus. And like, and sitting there and hearing my daughter who's 15 sing along and I was like, how do you know that? How do you know that? And it, that's what I like. Them things like Octopus's Garden and things like that, that are just ingrained, that, that somehow you just know them. Like, it's, it's, it's weird. Like, but I suppose my point was um, that probably set me up for having an ear for melody or want, enjoying sure. melody. You know, I find inane kind of rep- repetitious stuff, unless it's really banging, I find it, I can't listen to it. Yeah. I just get sick of it, you know. Yeah. So I, I like a good song. 
but I'm not really. I wouldn't say I'm a I'm a purist songwriter. I just yeah. think a good melodic idea is good enough, and lyrics I'll probably get into later. You know? Yeah. Okay. So for track three, Nick, I'm going to ask you the song that reminds you of your time at school. Ah, right. Okay. Well, uh, B52's Rock Lobster. Easy. Uh, I mean, again, you know, this is very much of my era, and and I think the B52s are brilliant. And that era, the B-52s, B-52s, Hot Lava, Own Private Idaho. I mean, those two, Kate, uh, the, the vocalists, Kate Pearson and Cindy, you've forgotten her name. I don't know Cindy's second they, name they were, They were so unique. The sound was unique. The instrumentation was unique. And, and again, it's like the joy, you know. It's like, it's all, it doesn't feel like it's been written. It feels like they are just making it up yeah. because it's so spontaneous yeah. sounding but Rock Lobsters it's almost like a comedy record it's like it's like Benny Hill you know or it's like uh, uh, Ernie do you know what I mean it, it's, it's like a comedy record because it's got a big narrative story yeah. or Bat Out of Hell you know you have yeah. there was a whole time when narr- records that have this kind of narrative uh, about the Rock Lobster it's, for instance but it's just the, it's just so unique it's amazing I still play that in my club now and a lot of listeners that that may be younger than us will probably know the B-52s for Love Shack and Rome and stuff like yeah. that. But but going back to, I guess, just maybe just after Punk, maybe what, 79, yeah. the first release of this? And and I guess they would have been doing CBGBs with Talking Heads and, well, they were Athens band, weren't they? They're from Georgia. Yeah. Uh, uh, 52s, hence the collaboration with REM for Shiny Happy People with Pearson because yeah. that was both Athens bands so she would have been they would have been playing the 40 Watt Club in Athens probably not CBGB's um, that record sounds like nothing else it's, no, it's got it's, crazy it's, it's surf a, guitar and it's intense as hell yeah. it's like it builds and builds and builds and the the bit at the end when where they're just making weird noises and screaming it's it's just incredible. It's interesting. I've done, I'm already spotting a theme here because ABBA, obviously, two two female vocalists yeah. who sing in Counterpoint and Harmony Beautifully. B-52s, Kate and Cindy, amazing. And Fred's voice is really great. Unu- yeah. Really unusual yeah. harmonies and, and dissonance that they used, and it worked beautifully. But And, and Fred, yeah. Hmm, okay. That's what interesting. a band. What a band. So... Hearing music like that at school, did you start thinking, I'm going to buy a guitar or I'm going to buy a pair of kit of drums? Or? No, I, I, oh, actually, no, yeah, you're right. I, what I did, and this was something that I remember now, it's a triggered a memory, I used to I used to want to play the drums. I really wanted to play the drums. Was this in Cardiff or? No, this was when we were, I would be in Bath by then. Okay. So uh, we left, I think we moved back to Bath when it must have been in the 70s. So I would have been 9, 10, 8, yep. 9, 10, something like that. And because uh, um, my mum's, uh, my grandparents were there and, and my mum and my dad split up. So I guess she probably moved back to kind of get a bit of family support yeah. and, you know, with me. And my mum had to work. So she would be, uh, she was at, teaching at school. So uh, I was really into drums and, um, and I used to have, we used to play tennis occasionally because my mum worked at girls schools and they had tennis courts. So, you know, we'd occasionally get, yeah. we'd get to go and have a knock around once in a while. So just, and I used to, sit on a couple of tennis rackets and they would be drums and if you taped like a, a an ice cream tub underneath they'd resonate so i would just and i made myself some drumsticks out of pieces of wood god this i, I can't remember how old i would have been probably 10 11 maybe a bit older 
And I really wanted to, I, re- I think I really wanted to play the drums. It was like air drum. Yeah. I, was air, I was air drumming, wouldn't I? Yeah, really? yeah, or yeah. I'd, made, no, I'd made my own custom drum kit. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that, that sounds that a sounds lot better, better, doesn't it? Absolutely. So when you hear sort of Rock Lobster, what memories does that sort of evoke for you? Um, I suppose it's kind of hanging out with with people, going to... Uh, I had a friend of mine uh, who had... whose parents... His dad was an architect, and they, they had a big old refectory house somewhere out, in, out, out of Bath. And we used to go out there for weekends, and it was all very rough and ready. And just kind of basically hang out for the weekend and listen to that kind of stuff. So it reminds me of that thing. And also, you know, there's all that teenage angst of that year. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I was at school, I did... I kind of I, I went through phases of, of having sort of close friends and then there was a there was a bit of bullying and a bit of you know th- lots of people go through the same sort of stuff so that was probably uh, I think it was a bit later it's hard to remember exactly the sequence of events so school wasn't generally massively happy times for me and when it got to secondary school junior school I loved it I used to enjoy it. I, I was yeah. I was you know interested in loads of things and, yeah. and, I, and I had a good general knowledge because I guess I must have had a quick an inquisitive mind yeah um, was you a creative kid aside from your custom uh, drum you kit. know what I'm not sure I was really I mean I guess to that degree I mean my mum's an artist yeah. and I never really you know showed I don't think I really showed any kind of anything any skills at, uh, <laughs> at drawing or whatever yeah. I, I, I maybe I've got an aesthetic yeah, uh, but I learned. I, re- I was learning piano at the time as well. My mum. Uh, I had a friend whose mum was a classical pianist. She was uh, Mexican. She lived up the road, and uh, she had. Uh, and I was so I'd be learning Freddie the Frog or whatever it was. And I, I you know, so I've got basic. I had some basic keyboard skills. But she, I remember, she was listening to Jean Michel Jarre Equinox, and that was very atmospheric. And I and, and I went on to buy it later. But I remember hearing that around the place as well. So that was quite a. a I guess it would have been quite formative. Again, yeah. very melodic. You know, yeah. it's it's not as it's not as out there and as experimental. You know, yeah. it was pretty mainstream stuff. It was just a very unique sound, I suppose. I, could, I couldn't agree more. Um, you, you know, growing up listening to lots of actually it would have been Oxygen first, wouldn't it? It would Equinox have been, came, yeah. Yeah, and then Equinox came later. Yeah, I got it because. I could see Destination Docklands from my bedroom window. The, the, <laughs> like when I was a, I must have been about thirteen, I think. And and a couple of my mates had the video to these. These are Jean-Michel Jarre concerts for those that are unaware. Had the video to was it called Rendezvous Houston? Oh yeah, God. I mean. I, I don't mean I've I've seen interviews with Jean-Michel Jarre and he seems like a really nice guy. And I, one day I might get to interview him, but yeah. I remember at the time thinking there's a sort of there was a bit of small man Napoleon complex going on there, and he looked right. like an absolute egomaniac, you know, with, with the spectacle that he was putting asbestos on. gloves playing a, yeah, the, a, a laser, harp, harp. laser harp. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was it was the it was the uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer yeah to punk as you know that was absolutely it, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do remember hearing Jean-Michel Jarre and thinking, oh, wow, that sounds, that sounds a bit more out there. And it, and it just sounded otherworldly. Yeah, it was right. very unique, wasn't it? Because, mm. I mean, there wasn't that much pure... Well, there was, there was electronic music around, but it, wasn't, it never got as mainstream as yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is... The songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, 
just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. Um, okay, so for track four. <laughs> so this this is a bit unfair, because when you say Desert Island Discs, and you kind of go, so these are the ones I would choose, Yeah. this actually just says, what was the first one you bought? Yeah. Which is not necessarily the same thing. I chose it at the time. I'm not yeah. sure I would now. but it, I'm it, holding it, you to it, mate. I'm yeah, basing, no, it's fair enough. I've based I'm, all, I'm, my, all, my, all, all my prep. All the following questions <laughs> are based around this decision. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> no mate. All right, okay. I, I've got written here, um, I think that would be, you're the one that I want, Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta yeah. from Greece. Mm-hmm. And then in brackets, I'm not very cool, am I? <laughs> but in my defence, I think what that was was the immerse. The you know that was when my loins started to get control over, over over my body a little bit. And I just remember because there was a video for that, and she was wearing spandex, and they were beautiful people. And it was quite. I, I mean, it seems so sort of pedestrian these days, but for the time, it was quite quite racy. I'm pretty sure you weren't alone yeah. in thinking, oh my god, what am I watching? Because Oh, Olivia Newton-John was an absolutely beautiful woman. And, and I think it... And also, when you look at it, because the, the, the thing that, you know, from, you know, a good Sandy to bad Sandy, it's like the, the precursor to Black Swan, isn't it? You know, it's this, yeah. there's this... That there's probably a male fantasy, you know, that's deep-seated. You know, it's, it, it's not something we even learn. It's yeah. probably almost primal, the kind of, you know, the, the thing where the goody two-shoes and the, and the, yeah. and the vixen. It, I'm not sure how good I feel about having been sort of... Uh, uh, um, victim to that myself but I, I think it's worth mentioning that you know it wasn't it was my hormones yeah. probably but it's, a, but it's a cracking tune it's a great record Man, and it's fast do you know what for intros the theme to Greece from Frankie Valley. oh yeah it's a beautiful song that's, that, that's an intro that then stabbed right at the yeah. beginning that's a cracking intro and well, um, the one that I want is like a country record. It's like, but it's not that, it's the melody. It's the melody of it, I think. And it's really interesting because John Travolta was, was Greece before Saturday Night Fever? No, it, after. It was, after, was it? I mean, he was, he was mesmerizing. You know, I mean, because he, he just looked like he couldn't help him. He looked what was happening to him on stage, on screen, was real. Yeah. I'm sure, however many men and women were. were what, looking at Olivia Newton-John and thinking she was this absolute beautiful woman, there was the same looking at John Travolta yeah, as well. No, because sure. he it's was very interesting, isn't it? I mean, and I think also, I mean, people are probably just thinking, what a bunch of squares. But actually, when you consider what, you know, now there's just so much everywhere. You know, the, these were big uh, me, uh, cultural events, mm. big films. Oops. Big, big films, films like this were big cultural events, particularly the, the, the pop, because there was that, there would be, you know, Hazel O'Connor, Broken Glass, there's, you know, the mods one, you know. You know, they're, 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 these events used to be a thing. Quadrophenia yeah. was a massive thing. Yeah. As was Greece, as was Saturday Night Fever. All of them, huge soundtracks that become just as important as the films. You know, I'm sure Saturday Night Fever, I think, was one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm sure the Grease album must be up there. I mean, it's ridiculous amounts. It's- Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Funny though, isn't it? Because when you hear people, like you hear the Bee Gees talking about Saturday Night Fever, you know, they were doing it for money. You know, they were they, they just sort of thought, oh, we'll just knock this out because, you know, mm. we're getting paid. No one will take it seriously. And then unfortunately for them, that's when they got, it yeah. defined them. Yeah. And they probably would and, and still do say it wasn't their best work. It wasn't the work they were most proud of. I mean, I'm sure they're happy that they did it because mm. it's paid, you know, it's given them lots of money, whatever, you know, it's yeah. given them a living. But they weren't, it, it was out of their control. You know, yeah. this thing happened that they were unable to, yeah. to, to then sort of rein yeah. in. I think, I don't know, do they just think let's have a stab at this disco business? Let's, uh, I'm sure I've seen. I'm, I'm sure I've seen documentaries about it where they just sort of say, "Oh yeah, well, they just they just did the walking thing," and they go, "Well, that's the tempo." Work. You know, there's all these kind of tunes. Yeah. There's stories about the, the way that those tunes came up, and I think that's. But yeah, it's, it, I suppose it's indicative of an era, isn't it, of when that kind of stuff happens, and now. Because I, I think also we didn't have MTV, we didn't have as many pop music videos, so there wasn't as much yeah. visual representation of music tracks. Completely. So you know, the Completely. film was kind of. I mean, I think probably the closest thing that there's been to that is uh, High School Musical. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I'm not a big Disney fan, but that is some really well made and well written. You know, musical stuff. It's soft and you know, it's cheesy. It's we've got fifteen-year-old daughters, Nick. So uh, I mean, they're great. They are great tunes. I think we've probably all seen that a lot. Yeah, no one's ever going to buy anything I ever do again after after this (laughs) podcast. Which is a good job because I don't release anything, so that's good. Um, Can you remember where you bought Grease? I bought it from Duxton and Pinkers, I think. Uh, Duxton and Pinkers was a, a music shop in Bath uh, that was uh, really big. It was had uh, sheet music, uh, record, recorded music, and a music shop, and a, a piano and an organ section. It ran all the way down an entire block in Bath, central Bath. Yeah. And there's a funny, it's now closed, and it's really sad because it was a huge, sprawling place that had all sorts of stuff. And the, uh, the guy used to have the music shop, he, owned, he rented it. During the war, the Admiralty came into Bath because they did a load of uh, um, 
uh, and a load of officers from the Admiralty there, and yep. they, they basically commandeered his whole thing. But in return, he got it in perpetuity for a pound a year for the rest of his, for the rest of his life. Really? So it, 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 it was, in a way, this massive music store was kind of government-funded, which yeah. I quite like. So oh, fantastic. So before we get on to the next question, sort of t- talking about your sort of formative years um, pre-kind of making music and that, w- w- was gigs on the radar? Was you going to shows? Uh, well, what was the first gig yeah, you saw? Yeah, I, I probably, the first gig I saw would have probably been The Beat at the Pavilion. Yeah, climbing in through the back window because there were there were bands you were touring then, and we were all skint. You know, nobody had any money, and and a friend of mine figured out that you could climb, you could walk around the back of the hall and climb in through the the uh, the artist restroom window, if you were a skinny teenager, which we all were back then, and climb in and get in. So I'm pretty sure it was the beat. I was sadly lost ranking yeah. Roger last week. Yeah, and I saw them twice, I think. Uh, so that would have been the first, and then. I'm trying to think what after that. I didn't see a lot of gigs because, I mean, it just wasn't... Yeah. But they, they would have been the first. So the, that, And that was the two-tone movement. There was a lot of that stuff. That would yeah. have been another... I mean, I did toy with the idea of putting a two-tone in there for sort of school stuff. But, yeah. Which was, but I didn't. I went for B-52. <laughs> I'm glad you did as well. So we'll get on to um, your, your career in started in music um after this next song but um so for track five i asked guests the song that soundtracked their time clubbing well this is a bit different for me because i used to work in a club rather than go to a club but i mean i would go to the club because i was working at a club anyway and that was moles in bath and i was a front of house engineer so i used to do the sound for loads of bands in fact we were talking before the show wouldn't we i might yeah. have done you yeah but we think i might have just left just yeah. before you turned up so um, not on the night, obviously, yeah. but I might have left that job. So, um, so yeah, there, and there was a Saturday night DJ called uh, Derek Pierce, DJ Derek, uh, and he not not the uh, not the one from Bristol who uh, did the, yep. all the reggae stuff. And he used to play at the end of the night when they turn the lights on, they play this track. Uh, I, but I mean, bear in mind also when I started working in the club, it would have probably been in the eighties. So there wasn't an awful lot of dance music. It mm-hmm. would be it would have been stuff like you know Talking Heads, uh, um, oh God, the Lewis Sum. You know, yep. I mean, not like dance music. Yeah. And so the the extended mixes were just starting to come yeah. in. So it was almost like a di- a discotheque yeah. vibe. Um, but at the end of the night, when they switched off, he would always play uh, "My Baby Just Cares for Me" with Nina Simone. Uh, uh, so that's every night I would hear yeah. that record, and it would be the lights on, and there'd usually be maybe a bit of a lock-in afterwards. And you know, so that for me was what reminded me of the club stuff, rather than you know some banging tune that yeah. you know I you know I had to jump on the dance floor because I wasn't yeah. I'd be working there, so yeah. I wouldn't be looping about. So I'll ask you then because you probably have a similar sort of take on it to me, like. I've spent all my life, whenever I've been in the clubs, either DJing or promoting. Um, did it kind of change your outlook on, on, on going out to clubs and, and, and gigs and things like that? Do you find you've sort of seen behind the curtain and, and there's a little bit of magic yeah, lost? Yeah, and I, I, think, I think there is an element of that. Um, but you can still appreciate when it you can see it being done well. Com- completely. I think perhaps back then I would still be because it, you know it was my club. I knew it. You know I knew everybody there. I knew the people who were working there. So it was more of a social thing, really. Yeah. 
you know, and I was doing my job, and that would be fine. So, yes, to a degree, I think I would understand it a bit more. But yeah. I, I didn't, really, to be honest, I didn't do that club in a lot. But I, there were other clubs in Bath, and I would go there, and I worked in other clubs in Bath. But I also just went out for a drink in other clubs yeah. in Bath as well. And the thing is, I was quite a shy lad, and I didn't really start going out you know, drinking until yeah. I was a bit late. I wasn't one of those people who could get into a club when I was 15. You know, I, yeah. I had to be 19. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was exactly the same, mate. I was exactly the same. Um, okay, so let's, let's sort of look at your sort of uh, entry point into music then. So, so uh, had you left school when you started sort of doing bands and, and, and getting involved in music? I think I was probably in the fifth form. So I was in the last year of school, because now they have to do six, but I did fifth, and then I went to uh, Tech College. And I started to get into synthesis. And I remember vividly, because um, there used to be these things called PGL Adventure Holidays, which, you know, you, you they were like, you know, dormitories in fields in Wales where yep. you'd go get up in the morning and go canoeing down. I went to Trafield in Wales. And yeah, that. all that sort of stuff. <laughs> with well, You know, you go there and you do that, you have a week. And, you know, it's, yeah. it was it was quite hockey sticks and sort of, you know, you'd get a clip around the ear sort of yeah. stuff. But and your parents would pay and you'd get a couple of weeks off and uh, they'd get a couple of weeks off from you. and you But you'd have your own little sort of go at life, you know, yeah. away from home. Yeah. And there was discos there. And I remember hearing uh, Depeche Mode, um, and I think, what was the first track? Was it New Life? New was Life it? was the first. New Life was no, the first. No, Dreaming of... Um, I think no, was New, it, it, was, it was, was New it, Life, it was New Life. It? Or was it Dreaming of Me? Vince, well, Vince Clark. It was New Life. Yeah. Vince Clark, uh, who was part of... And, and something about that spoke to me. And it, again, it was just like this perfect electronic pop music. And I was just like, wow, that is... That's really good. How do I get some of that? And I probably started looking at magazines, you know, in the shops. So how do I get a synthesizer? Okay, right, I'm not going to get a synthesizer. They look at the price of those. And I eventually, uh, I rented one from, uh, I rented one from uh, Duxon and Pinkers. And my friend uh, Dan was uh, into playing bass. And he really, we were really into Japan. So he basically, he got a wall bass from his, his, mother, his parents were a bit better off than me. So they bought him a beautiful bass. And then we started to jam in his bedroom. And then I bought a synth, you know, saved up and bought a synth. I went to Leightonstone. I think it was ABC Music in Leightonstone. Came all the way up here from Bath. Had to get up really early in the morning, come back with this box, and then we used to jam. And then I, you know, I, I actually fronted and sang in a band, school band. Then we were absolutely awful. But yeah. that's when it started. That's all when right. it started. And that's, and it was, and I'm pretty sure it was the Depeche Mode kind of moment. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I, I could get, take or leave most of Depeche Mode. I'm, I really like um, Songs of Faith and Devotion. I think that's a, that's probably, for me, the best album for them. So Depeche Mode are one of my favourite bands. Okay. The club I run used to be called Crocs, and it's just outside Bathroom. Some of the nicest guys you could ever hope to meet, the... in the words of Tommy Vance. <laughs> yeah. And so they were our resident band. Uh, and so Depeche Mode and then Yazoo and... Uh, and yeah, Vince's, Vince's royalty, where, where we're from. Oh, right, okay. And, uh, you win, you win. Like, no, no, God, no. No, I'm not. I've, I've, never, I've, I've never met any of Depeche Mode. I've, I've been absolutely blessed to have put an event on with Andy Bell that was particularly well-timed to, to, to mirror the, the Mute Festival uh, in, that was at the, the Rand House a few years oh, back. Okay. Yes, I, went, I think I went to that. 
Because I've, I've got some funny stories about that. Well, first of all, we... Because you work with Goldfrapp, obviously. And I work with Goldfrapp, yeah. yeah and, and, but before that, when we were remixing after the sort of DNA stuff, I, uh, we remixed um, Erasure. I can't remember what the song was. What album? Oh, God, it started off with some wailing. But I remember the multi-track came. It was 48 tracks, and on every single track, there was a little synth going... On one note, and there was just, and it all just sort of slotted together. And I was, I, I just saw, I felt like I kind of made it. I got the multi, I got the multi track from Vince. But at the mute thing, we went and we did some interviews. I interviewed Flood, I interviewed uh, um, Alan Wilder was there, wasn't he? I didn't interview him, I interviewed Gareth Jones. Uh, and I also, we also got a chance to interview Vince. Wow. But I was with a friend who, who'd set up the interview, and she was sort of driving. So we were just there, we were filming this thing, and we walked into this room, and it was like a downlight. It was like a police, it was like a police cell. Yeah. And Vince was, they had a light above him. He looked like he'd been accused of some very major yeah. crimes. And he wasn't very impressed. And the, the girl who was in, you know, was going to do the, she f- totally froze and just sort of became starstruck and couldn't think, couldn't, just couldn't speak. And it was the most awkward five minutes of my life. And they, they knocked on the door and said, yeah, can we get out of there? And it, I've, I've got the tape somewhere. And it's just, it'd never see the light of day. But I, that was my one chance to interview Vince. And it was, it was I totally blew it. I, I got out of jail quite quickly because um, I, I, he'd just come to watch Andy. And Andy was performing a couple of Erasure records and, and some of his solo stuff. And uh, under a club night that I put on with Andy called Quiet Life, as he was a massive Japan fan. Right. Um, but I said to Vince, you used to play at my club called Crocs. And that was it. He was like, what, you're from Basildon? I said, just up the road. And he was like, oh, he's, a club, he's Crocs still going. And that was it. He just couldn't believe that the club was still there. And I just got him reminiscing. So it was like, it was, uh, I didn't actually have anything to say other than I work there. And then that was it. He was exactly. away. He was it's just... interesting though, isn't it? Again, he's a sort of pop genius, I think. Completely. As well. a- know, a- absolutely. And it's, I suppose, I mean, that's the thing. When we were doing remixing and whatnot, people wanted these a lot of long extended mixes. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get on with it because it was like, oh, nothing's happened for eight bars. What am I going to do? You know, and I just, I get really bored really quickly because I, I like the pop sensibilities. I like the pop sensibilities. You know, I don't mind, sometimes if you've got a really strong tune, you can yeah. extend it really easily because yeah. it's just, it will stand repetition. But I'm not really a sort of, Monster Beats sort of person. I like to think. I used to th- like to think I was. You know, when yeah. Tom's Diner happened, I really thought. You so know, let's talk about that. Ah, oh so, yeah, you haven't asked the question. Yet, I haven't. You? No. <laughs> so, um, good intro. Right. Uh, it's, it's a, that's a worthy entrance into the uh, the intro category as well. So, how did that come about? My, I, I was working with a rapper in Bath, local guy called Wiz Fresh. It was a brilliant. He had he was just had fantastic ideas, and he used to come to me with a load of cassettes and vinyl and stuff, and I'd sample it into my in my bedroom studio, into the little Akai sampler, and we I'd help him put his tracks together, record his vocals, and you know, because I had a four track, yeah, and I was just doing that bedroom studio thing, um, and I remember he had really, really, really powerful aftershave. And I used to say, God. He was going to say rhymes or something like that. Gee, what the hell? But no, his raps were brilliant. I mean, he was really good. Unfortunately, when you turn the mic on, he got overexcited and he couldn't rap in time. Really? Yeah, he he just kind of kept tripping over himself. But his lyrics and his ideas were brilliant. So anyway, I put together a track and he, he knew a DJ at Moles, who I didn't really know. And he asked him to come along and have a listen, see if we could do anything. And so I met up with this guy, Duke, Neil Slateford. He came in. 
And he sort of went, wow, this is cool. How about, we worked on that, we got something. He goes, oh, I've got some, a few ideas. I've got a mate, actually. Look, look. my mate um, works for, he was a record company rep. So he was, he, uh, he had a you know, big old estate car and he'd drive around pimping singles mm. and uh, bribing shop owners with free stuff. You know, yeah. for EMI it was. And uh, one, of his, one of the guys that he knew had a record shop in London said, oh, look, I've got a great idea. Why don't you have a crack at this for a remix? I'll pay for the studio time. And it was uh, La Serenissima. Which is, as a first track go, pretty musically complicated. Yeah. It's the Rondo Veneziano thing, lots of classical stuff, and it was quite hard work. And, I, and so we went into the studio, and that was the sole purpose of that. But in the meantime, dude came along with his acapella, which is the Tom's Diner thing, and I sort of put some music underneath it and done the beats, and it was like, yeah, it was starting to come together. And he said, we went in to mix that, and he said, uh, oh, at the end, you know, just mix that other one. Yeah, and I, and I was, I was. I'd never been into a studio before, really. You know, I was out of my comfort zone. I had to take all my equipment in, and it was—it wasn't a big studio. It's a, fr- a friend of mine now, um, and I was really stressed out. And I'd sort of had enough. And I mixed—I mixed Tom's Diner at the end of it, and that—that that was a session. We did—it was like a couple of days. We did those two things, and I was—I was kind of—I really don't understand how to make this sound any good or any of that stuff. And I just went, "All right," and I mixed it, and I took it, <laughs> and I gave it. I, we put it on that, and then next thing I know. Tom's Diners, I, w- I, went to work, that's right, I went to work at Glastonbury because I used to stage manager at Glastonbury, uh, um, acoustic stage. So, you know, before mobile phones, really. So I was, off, I was out of there for a week. Came back, my answer phone was just full, saying they're playing it on Radio 1. And this was a white label. It was, it was not, you know, it, this was stuff that radio, national radio wouldn't play white labels. It was policy. But they played this. Bruno Mars, I think it was, played it. No, Bruno, what's his Brooks. name? Bruno Brooks, Bruno Bars, wrong Bruno. <laughs> um, and it went mental, you know, and then it just became this huge thing that became totally out of control. And we, it was just like, oh my goodness. You know? So talk me through like the kind of ha- how it works with, because obviously quite early on, I imagine somebody from the label or, or you know, from Suzanne Vega's mm. outfit must have thought, oh, tight, what's this? Like, had permission been put in place and things like that, or...? There was, well, the guy who who asked us to do Serenissima just sort of said, well, I'll, I'll kind of help you out here, I'll, you know, and then he saw a management opportunity. So then they did a deal with A&M. A&M paid us... Uh, well, the, the story goes, A&M were like, no, no, she's going to hate this. This isn't going to fly at all. How, how dare you, you know, our artist, you know... But actually, she thought it was really cool yeah. and was really into it. Um, I mean, there's plenty of documentaries of, of her talking about it and me talking about it. Um, so they were wrong completely. It turned out into this massive hit. But they tr- they were being very... Uh, they were just being twat, really, yeah. if I'm honest. A&M were really not not a nice bunch of people at that time and they were all sort of trying to take credit for it saying it was some of their guys that did it not us and it was just, it all got a bit unpleasant and we signed it away for next to nothing which was really stupid which is probably unfortunately the inexperience of our manager because basically I wrote all the music to that record yeah. you know yeah the archipelago we made the chorus out yeah. of that record because the chorus the da 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 was mm. the bit at the end that was yeah. under the fade you know we turned that into the main refrain yeah. we did, you know the, the chords and stuff I did all of that stuff which I now know was actually should have probably got somewhere yeah um so yeah that was kind of it but the, those first two things top five crazy both of them how mad's that yeah it was but uh, in fact i've got and then we did a remix shortly after i've got a, 
I've got a framed uh, Hot 100 billboard, uh, not billboard. What was it? Music Week. Yeah. I've got, and there are, we've got three records in the in the top forty. Yeah, that's good. It's kind of you know, it's it, it, it it's that sort of thing that doesn't happen in your life very often. Yeah. You know, and it, you just kind of go blimey, you know. And then the work starts. Then you suddenly you got to do it. And the thing is, I'm not. At that time, I was pretty pale and, and unconfident. You know, I had a bedroom studio for a reason because yeah. I didn't really have the confidence to go out and sure. work, you know, and tote myself. So it was quite, it was quite difficult. We were talking a little bit before the show about the, the kind of, uh, the, 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 the power of the tabloids at the time. Yeah. And I got really worried because everybody wanted a piece of us, right? And, and people wanted to do interviews and things. And I just was scared stiff. I mean, ridiculously paranoid when it comes down to it. Who's going to care? Um, so the, the, the tabloids were trying to get in touch with us and wanted to find a story and I just wouldn't talk to them. I just thought, I'm not risking that. I don't want them kind of coming round to me mum's yeah. house and finding out if I did anything bad as a kid. Because yeah. at the time, you know, that, that's what the sort of thing that they yeah, did. of course. You know, and I wasn't prepared to trade the notoriety for, for that invasion of privacy. Absolutely. Okay, so... Let's talk about your hometown then. And so, for track six... I asked for a favourite song from an artist from your hometown. Okay, well, we were uh, um, we were talking again before, you know, what bands come from Bath. Uh, we came up with a few. Uh, and um, Tears for Fears obviously were massive. I knew quite a lot of the people in the bands. You know, Will Gregory, Goldfrapp, he was a saxophonist. Not many people know that. He played all the saxophone on Tears for Fears. He, he's, a, he's a world-class saxophonist. He played with Michael Nyman Band. You know, he's really really top draw. I mean, I, he probably would say he's not now because he hasn't played so much, but I mean, he's a properly trained musician. So I knew him, I knew Andy Davis, the keyboard player, um, and they were they were living the dream, you know? And But before that, I think it probably, uh, it's a difficult one, it's Tears for Fears Shout maybe, because it was such a, it's emo, isn't it? It's uh, they call it now. It's very it, it, and, and and shout is particularly about primal therapy, I believe. Yep. So it's got resonances. But they, I mean, a lot of the guys in this band, like uh, Roland and uh, Kurt Smith, they were two years above me in school, three years above me in school. So you know, very much of our generation, and it, and it, and it it sort of ignited this kind of wow, they can do it. Yeah, you know, brilliant. Therefore, you know, that's a that that's like being struck by lightning, three chairs down. You're going, oh, yeah. that could. Maybe I could get involved in this sort of mm. thing, even though I was probably massively unprepared for, yeah. as I just said, the previous story, uh, for that so would you <laughs> sort have, of life. So would you have seen him like, quite early on? I never saw him. No, I've never seen Tears of Fears, bizarrely. Had tickets for him in Brighton a little while ago, but um, couldn't go. And, uh, and my mates were supported by Yazoo. Wow. Well, Moye, and, but played all the Yazoo hits. There, I mean, the thing was, is Roland. I didn't know them. I never met them. But Roland was always seemed a bit unapproachable, a bit prickly. You know, he seemed a bit of a sort of person that that you. That's a, that's would, a fair assumption. I you know, reckon. I don't know. I mean, I mean, he's really talented, and they are really good, and they, there must have been a lot. Seemed of Seemed pretty going. serious guy, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, serious guy. You know, Kurt looked more approachable, didn't he? Yeah. Um. So, I didn't. I never had anything. But I, the periphery. I mean, uh, uh, Ian Stanley. I ended up working with Ian Stanley, but when we were remixing, we swapped remixes. Cause so Ian Stanley Ian produced... Ian Stanley was produced yep. uh, uh, with... Um, God, who's the guy? Chris. Oh, that's terrible, my man. You could, can you insert something that makes me look good? Hughes? Chris Hughes, that's yeah. it. So they were... Uh, um, so I ended up working with Ian Stanley when we were doing the DNA mix, you know, where we, we had loads of remixes yeah. and we traded. He mixed, he mixed a couple of our tracks of the DNA album 
and we mixed a couple of things for him, you know. So, and he's an interesting chap. Um, so I didn't, you know, the, the ancillary people I kind of knew around the place, but they they were the biggest band out of my home time yeah. that were doing things within my sort of sphere because there's probably prog artists and stuff that are from around here that, but I wouldn't have. That wouldn't have they wouldn't have meant anything to me because it wasn't really so as as uh, uh, as much of a connection. It wasn't in my world. And they they they, they I mean I mean they, they get overlooked as being at one point probably around the time of this album uh, that, that songs on a big chair that shouted on probably one of the biggest bands in the world. You yeah. Know? Um, well, they broke America big yeah. time, didn't they? They were touring. They they I think they were one of the first big pop British pop acts of that era yeah. to properly break America. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think uh you know the, 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 they 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 changed quite quickly. Like the first album was way more synth heavy, wasn't it? And you know, and, and it's a cracking album the hurting. And then I think Big Cherry's far more rock and then Gloss, I yeah, think and then Seeds of Love is a, a full-on... <laughs> well, that, I remember because there were there was stuff coming back, you know, Seeds of Love, it's like, oh, they still haven't finished it, they still haven't finished it, they still haven't finished it. You know, it's this, it became this sort of... It's their Sergeant Peppers, and, and rather, um, unfortunately, had quite a, a lot of Sergeant Pepperisms oh, in it. Oh, God, yeah. But... Um, Hundred odd tracks I think on they that, had, I, think, I think probably they were... Either their, their relationship, you know, Kurt and... and uh, um, um, Roland. Roland were unraveling a bit. I think it all probably got a bit. I think it all went a bit, sort of, and the band split up. You yeah, know? I think he sings three on the first album, two on the second album, and one on the third album. Kurt, I think he was yeah. slowly disappearing. I can't imagine how difficult that would be to manage a creative output because I mean you, you're not always on at the same time. You know, yeah. I mean, I can, I, I'm not. I'm not really a songwriter. I mean, I contribute to songs and get occasional credits, but I'm not. I'm not a sort of sitting in the room. Okay, this is my idea. Where's yours? Sort of thing. I haven't been in that situation. So, so what's but, your role within like the gold frap um, stuff? Because am I, am I right that you got up for a Ivan Novello? I've got an Ivan Novello, yeah, for uh, Strict Machine. I oh. co-wrote that. Um, I mean, they were very generous about it. But what tends to happen is, you know, they'd be working together, and. There might, I might just sort of go, well, look, here's, I've, here's a few riffs. Here you go. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And just toss it their way because it might spark something. They're looking for the, the kind of thing that lights the process because what happens with an album like that, because they're not sit, sitting down with a guitar songwriter types. They're looking for a sound world and maybe an approach and a vibe that will, they can then go, oh, yeah, let's go that way. You know, and so... So, you know, like the first one was very filmic and sort of John Barry. The second one was sort of more uh, uh, glamish, you know. Mm. And then, you know so they, they've all got a thing. So, I, but I, the, the first album, I literally just helped them kind of manage it, you know. So I would drive the sequencer. I might come up to make some suggestions for tracks. I might, and then more and more, I ended up doing quite a lot of the beats and programming beats and maybe coming up with bass lines and arrangement ideas and whatnot. So just general dog's body yeah bit of playing bit of this bit of that you know but i did i did co-write i ended up with a couple of co-writes for the amount of stuff i put in on a couple of tunes and that and to be honest that's you know as i'm sure that's that's where you you're going to make money if you're going to yeah. make money i mean they must they must be minted yeah because they got loads of sinks you know i got one song and that did quite well and that that was very helpful when i was skint so. yeah what a tune yeah they're, well, they're, they're, it's interesting with Goldfrapp because Goldfrapp are very melodic, but Alison's vocal delivery style is quite um, 
in what's the word I'm looking for? It's not it's not clear. It's, it's not clarity. It's more about the melody. And she's got such a beautiful and v versatile voice that it's all about the tune. So that you know there might be a few words in there that you could get, but it's not what you wouldn't get like a, a, a classic lyric out of them so much. But some of their stuff is. I mean that's what I put down uh, as a uh, for one of the songs a bit later on that you know one of theirs is is one of the ones where she well, wrote a lovely tune. Let's, let's get on with that then. So that is that is um, track seven. That is a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. So yeah, us. well, I, I, this was a few. Uh, yeah, that, that, I, I, this was the hardest one to get because there are so many. But I don't I don't listen to so much music now, you know, because I'm doing different things. But um, Goldfrap uh, A and E, it's beautiful, beautiful track, uh, record. I didn't really have much to do with that one, uh, sadly. I wish I could say that was my idea, but it wasn't. Uh, and also Ocean, which is off the latest album, Silver Eye, which I, I did have a couple of little shouts in there. I kind of came up with the idea of you know, a few things. So I feel yeah. a bit of ownership of that. Uh, and uh, there's a few others. There's so many also contenders as well. From him, from him. Alessandro Cortini. You might not know of him, but he's, I don't. he's Nine Inch Nails keyboard player. He's an Italian synthesizer guy. He lives in Berlin now. Lovely bloke. We did a couple of videos uh, touring his studio when he lived in LA, and he's got you know he's got an amazing setup of really rare and beautiful instruments. But he's very much again he's a kid that grew up. His parents played the Beatles, so this electronic, this very obscure electronic music instruments that he uses, which normally are used for experimental stuff and yeah. weird things that you never hear the light of day or certainly couldn't sing along to. And he's brilliant. Uh, so his track is called, uh, uh, well, he goes under the name Sonoio and the track is called Enough and he's got a video for it. And it's the thing about I like about it. Not only is it a great video, a, a great melody, but there's so much dense music material in there when I listen to it, I just think, oh, how on earth did you mix that? I don't understand how you pulled that all together because it's all happening in the same frequency area, but yet it's so, it's got clarity. It's a genius. And Bean Beanie, uh, um, uh, Beanie Man, Sim Simmer. I don't know that. Who's got the keys to my Beamer? Ah, right. Da, 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 yeah, right. Of course. I don't know if you're going to play these tunes in this or not. We, but... we have a Spotify playlist to accompany Ah, okay, right. Yeah. So... Uh, and that the reason I like that one is because uh, DJ Derek, the other DJ Derek, the guy from Bristol who used to play reggae stuff, yep. uh, he used to do the backstage bar at WOMAD. When WOMAD, because I, I, I used to work for Peter Gabriel um, on CD-ROM stuff, and when uh, they used to put WOMAD on in Reading, uh, and it was a bit of a party for the real world people so there'd be the festival and then there'd be this massive backstage area with a huge bar and a yeah. DJ a DJ Derek was uh, was playing tunes there and, and Beanie Man was one of the ones and that was a particularly good year yeah before before everybody had to worry about the money and, yeah. you know it was it, there was some good times yeah and it's a great tune Sonic State yeah uh, it's interesting how that came about, really, because after all this music production and I was involved in CD-ROM things, there was this sort of sense that you can spend so much time in the studio or developing something, you know, it could take years or months and months and months, and and somebody could cock it up at the end with, you know, the business side of things or whatever. And, and the internet was just emerging. We started this in 1994 as a website. A bunch of mates all got together and just said, oh, let's make a website. And we sort of did. We just did it. It was very, very punk in a way, you know, and you could just do it and have an idea the night before, type it all up, upload it via your dial-up modem, and there it was. 
And I love that. I love that the, the creative cycle is so much quicker and more immediate. And that's one thing that technology has enabled for us. You know, I mean, like you're doing a podcast. You just, yeah. you know, tidy it up, make me sound good, remove the rubbish I talk about, <laughs> and then you've got a show. You know, it yeah. can happen very, very quickly. You don't have to deal with any other stuff. And yeah. I like that. That was sort of, for me, why I wanted to do this, because it yeah. felt like it was something we could just do very quickly and just get on with it. Yeah. And now it's a, you know it's become a business and its own thing. You know now it's all about video and. So explain a little bit about. What oh it is. Uh, yeah, I suppose um, so. Sonic State is, is is kind of like think about it as an online magazine dedicated to music technology. So synthesizers, drum machines, uh, DJ um, software, recording, live production, music production, all of those things, all of them. There are a number of elements. We do we've got a YouTube channel. Uh, where we I review instruments, synthesizers, whatever. Uh, we have a weekly podcast as well, which is a video, uh, which is just talking, you know, similar to what this is, roundtable thing, got people from all sorts of industry, uh, software developers. We've got uh, guys in Nile Rogers' chic band, you know, we've got uh, Dave Spears, who I think you've also talked to. He's been he, on it since His day episode one. will be out this Friday. Well, there we go. Mm. How timely. Well, ne- uh, well, last Friday, don't you mean? Yeah, be, it, yeah, it, <laughs> would, it would have been out a few weeks by the time this one comes yeah. out, actually. But so, you know, and, and that's just something that I built because, I mean, I went through, you know, after all the music business stuff and I did a load of CD-ROM stuff and I, it was a very intense business period and I sort of had a bit of burnout and I just thought I, I need something that I can kind of sit in a room and do without having to kind of yeah. put a load of pressure on myself. So it kind of came out of that. And it's, so it's creating a, 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 a things that I could do that allowed me to enjoy working without necessarily too much of the pressure. And it's been up now. We've been doing it for years, you know. And now it's now it's sort of you know it's going great guns. It's sort of very niche, but people seem to like it. So I've got an international. I'm the synth guy basically on YouTube. Yeah, one of anyway. Yeah, so. That that is how uh, Ben, who organised this today, uh, <laughs> went. Yeah, you, you should you should definitely speak to Nick. He's the synth guy. Right. <laughs> um, where can people listen to your podcast? Where's it Where's it about? Sonicstate.com. You know that's what there. It's on iTunes. It's called Sonic Talk. Uh, we're at episode five. I published five seven two this morning before I came up to London for this. So okay. we've been you know doing a, doing it a while. We will put all the links on all Thank the social you. media when this comes out. Um, Nick, thank you so much for travelling up and doing this today. You're welcome. I really, really appreciate it. It's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you. There you go. Another episode done, finished, kaput, finito. And Nick was lovely. It was really nice to have a chat and find out about... I I love these moments where you speak to someone that's just kind of messing around with these little ideas and literally in a matter of weeks, boom, it's like worldwide smash hit and your life just then changes, you know, in in an instant and, and forever, you know. It's just sends you off down a completely different path and and yeah, and, and what it does do is it gives you loads of stories to come on podcasts and talk about. So thanks once more to Nick for doing that. Thanks for Ben for, for sorting that out and thanks for you for listening. I'll see you next time. Remember www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Laters. Oh yeah. Sorry. I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast 
and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, and there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with it. 